Our lesson this morning is called the Non-Profit Prophet. And it elicited a question as I looked at the quarterly and how they dealt with the lesson. There seemed to be an assumption that the quarterly makes. And then we have a question about it. And the question is, are we all called to be Amos's? <laughs> I don't think so. No. No, I don't think so, okay? Okay, let me ask the next question, and this is hinges on this. Who gets to be called a prophet? Who wants to be called a prophet? <laughs> Who wants to be called a prophet? Anybody sign up? Yes. I'm not going to answer that question, but I do need a refresher on Amos. It's been a while, and I know. You know, let me see. take a peek here. The lesson this week jumps around all around Amos. <laughs> and maybe what we should do is look at the first two verses that are used. It looks like it's based on Amos 1, 1, and 7, 12 to 15. So let's look at that. For some reason, we never hear of anybody naming their child Amos, do we? Joel, there's Joel's around. But Amos somehow, even though it's a short, nice little name, nobody names their kids Amos. I'm sure there have been some, but they're rare. Okay, Amos 1, 1. The words of Amos, who was among the shepherds of Tekoa, which he saw concerning Israel in the days of King Uzziah of Judah and the days of King Jeroboam, son of Joash of Israel, two, days before, two years before the earthquake. And then Amos 7, 12 to 15. Oh, maybe we should start with verse 10. Then Amaziah the priest of Bethel sent to King Jeroboam Israel, saying, Amos has conspired against you in the very center of the house of Israel. The land is not able to hear, bear his words. For thus Amos has said, Jeroboam shall die by the sword, and Israel must go into exile, away from his land. And Amaziah said to Amos, O seer, go flee away to the land of Judah. Earn your bread there and prophesy there, but never again prophesy at Bethel, for it is the king's sanctuary and it is the temple of the kingdom. And Amos answered Amaziah, I am no prophet, nor a prophet's son, but I am a herdsman and a dresser of sycamore trees. And the Lord took me from following the flock, and the Lord said to me, Go prophesy to my people Israel. What is Amos saying? Maybe we should probe that a little bit. Is he a prophet or is he not a prophet? <laughs> we know that there were schools of prophets, so obviously some people were prepared to for that occupation such. Amos wasn't and he was picked by God from his occupation to give the land a message from God. Okay, you like you agree with that? I want to probe that a little bit more, but Elmer has a sound. There seems to be a problem with Amos though, in that at this time Israel and Judah were prosperous. And God calls a person who is not a prophet to give a message. I don't think they would listen to him at all, and they didn't. Uh, it's strange that God would call a person outside the system of the of the system to mm -hmm. to give this. Series. Okay, okay, that's something else we need to probe a little bit. What is God doing calling Amos? Let's go back to this uh, this career versus being called. There were prophets, definitely, not just school, the school of the prophets of Israel, which we know from the Bible, but in the ancient Near East, there, was, there were prophets. And apparently, there was a kind of a prophetic guild in other cultures as well. 
And the role of a prophet was to warn the king in case the gods were angry with him and to tell the king what he ought to do to assuage divine anger so that he wouldn't get taken captive. That was kind of the given role in the ancient Near East of a prophet. We have messages to the, prophet of, uh, to the king of Assyria, for example, where a prophet writes to him that the gods are angry with him according to the signs, uh, omen signs, and would you please write us or, or actually take a razor and shave all the hair off your body as an appeasement offering. And the king writes back, please, isn't there something else I can do? Because <laughs> you can imagine ancient shavers and what they were like <laughs> and how torturous it might be to cut all the hair off of your body. And the prophet wrote back, sorry, there is no other way. <laughs> he was also supposed to cut all his nails and uh, nails and hair were a specific kind of, almost a substitution for human sacrifice apparently. So instead of killing yourself, <laughs> you offered parts of your body, the parts that were expendable and could grow back. So we know that prophets played an interesting role. And given that this is the case, we have then someone who is not a bona fide prophet in the traditional sense of things. Prophets were, were somewhat political appendages to the government. <laughs> in ancient times and you can see this working out you remember the story later on after a well yeah after Amos's time I believe but it might have been before I'm, I'm a little weak on a chronological time development of the northern kingdom but uh, you remember when Hezekiah I think it was and is it a not Ahaz one of the kings of Israel it was Ahab they met together and you remember Micaiah's vision Maybe we should look that up. Hold your finger at Amos. I'll see if we can find it here. This was not on my notes, so it's in Kings. And I believe it's in Second Kings. First Kings twenty two. Is it 1 Kings twenty two? It's in the wrong book, no wonder. Yes. First Kings twenty two. Joint campaign with Judah against Aram. This is Jehoshaphat. I sorry, I had the wrong king. Jehoshaphat and the king of Israel it says which would have been Ahab this is actually how Ahab got killed and if you read this entire chapter it's quite fascinating here what is going on you have a king actually both kings sitting in their little movable thrones out by the city gate apparently or stationed probably in the royal throne at the city gate archaeologists have dug up the remnants of how judgment took place in ancient uh, Near Eastern cities, particularly in Israel. You had the walled city, and just outside the gate, they had erected a little canopy on which they put a little throne, and the king would come and sit there for judgment. So apparently they simply added another chair. <laughs> you know that the word for throne is the same as the word for seat, so <laughs> don't get too fancy here. You had another chair sitting there, for the other king. So you had the king of Israel and the king of Judah sitting outside the gate at this and, and all of the officers are surrounding them and saying, shall we go out to battle against Aram? And Joshua says, we'll go. My people are your people and we're all the same kettle of fish here. We'll all go together. But Joshua said to the king, uh, you know, before we go up, let's consult God. 
Now, this is where prophets came in, and the earliest term for prophet is seer, one who sees. And that isn't someone who goes to God and says, please give me a vision, and God gives them a vision. A seer was someone who consulted the omens. It was uh, similar to the Baru priests of the Mesopotamians. Now, I don't believe Samuel did that kind of omen reading, but it was so common it had infiltrated into Israel that you did have people calling themselves seers who did that kind of thing. And it, it was a kind of occult, shall we say, kind of reading. But it, there wasn't, you know, we tend to think of everything as, as very cut and dried in the Old Testament, that, that God made himself so clear that the people knew, you know, that's all false, we don't go with that. And so you wouldn't call them a seer, you'd call them something else, and that God's true prophets would be seers. But it wasn't quite that simple. It was far more complicated than that, and far less clear. So... A, a true seer, a true prophet of God, always was up against these false prophets. And he always was in some kind of conflict with them. And the false prophets tended to go with the political flow. And, of course, any good king would want a lot of those false prophets around to boost his ego and to give him support and, and to kind of stand in the place of God for him so that he felt God was on his side. That's kind of the picture you have here. So when Joshua says, we want to consult the seers, Remember, Samuel was a seer. And when you wanted to inquire something of God, you went to the seer and asked him, you know, where are my donkeys? Remember Saul did that? That's the kind of way things went with the seer. Well, Joshua wants to consult the seers and inquire of God. And so here come all these prophets of the king. Now, they're the ones that are the, with the political full. They're not true prophets, but they call themselves prophets. And they come before the king and they say, go up. God will give him into your hand. Joshua gets smells a rat. <laughs> and he says, Ah, is there anybody else you haven't consulted around here? Oh, well, there's Micaiah, but he never says anything good about me. Well, I'd like to hear him out. Please get him. And so they bring Micaiah in. And that's when you have Micaiah's vision. And he too says, he knows what he's up against. And so he says, Sure, go up and get him. And Ahab says, How many times do I have to adjure you to tell me the truth? <laughs> it's all very political here. And finally, Micaiah says, well, I saw this vision of God sitting up on his throne, and he said, who will go to take on Ahab so that he might be killed? And one person said one thing, and another person said another thing, and finally this, uncle this uh, unclean spirit stepped forward. And we all wonder, who's that unclean spirit? And he says, I will go and be a lying spirit in the mouth of Ahab, in the mouth of Ahab's prophet, so that he will go and be felled by the king of Aram. It's a real puzzling story. It's one we could spend this morning on, but I, I'm, I'm looking at it to show you what the kinds of dimensions of prophets. Amos is in this fairly close time frame. It's a little later, but, but nothing had changed. He has the same problem that Micaiah had to deal with. That's why he says, I'm not a prophet. That is, I'm not like these other prophets who chose that as a career and, and got into things that way God took me from my career where I was and said that's where you're going to go so there's a very big difference between Amos and your traditional prophets in Israel and if we were Israelites we would understand that a whole lot better we would understand there was some kind of conflict going on and we'd have to weigh out who is the real prophet and who are the false prophets and how do we know 
Well, back to our, I, what was what was your question again? Oh, why would God choose someone outside the system? Now, does that help answer that question? Ellen. We've been told at other times that God called prophets who refused to give the message mm-hmm. that he had for them. Possibly, there might have been some prophets mm-hmm. who refused to give the message because they knew it wouldn't be accepted. And so God chose someone who he knew would give the message. So he'd ha- he was forced to choose someone they wouldn't necessarily listen to. Possibly. Well, let's come back to that. Linda, you had well, to say? Um, you know, like Mrs. White was called outside of the pastors mm-hmm. in her day, and I think in every age and, and in every situation, there, God chooses somebody outside of the system. Okay, I want to I raise that question because I think it's an important one to answer. If God knows that someone outside the system isn't going to be listened to, why would he choose someone outside the system? I mean, why not choose someone they're going to listen to? Doesn't God want his prophets to be listened to? Mrs. White was the third one that God had tried to get to go to the message. Okay, there's, let's, let's review history a little bit. We grew up being taught that. My understanding is that a careful researcher went through the records and discovered that it wasn't that, he, that the other prophets refused but that he gave them very limited messages for limited periods of time as a preparation for Ellen so that when she accepted the invitation to be a prophet, she would have their encouragement. So my understanding is that they didn't necessarily turn God down. That's been our conclusion because he went to Ellen White. We, we kind of deduced that. But it's not apparent that he did that. He simply gave them a very limited message for the 1844 movement. They gave it, and then he went on to Ellen White. For some reason, he didn't continue working with them. But they were preparation for Ellen White's message. So, unfortunately, I, do, I think that in principle that that happens, that God, well, I, I'm not sure it always happens. I think God knows who would turn him down ahead of time, <laughs> and he doesn't bother to ask, maybe. That highlights this question that I raised. Who gets to be a prophet? Are we all automatically prophets, or is being a prophet a specific thing? 1 Corinthians 14 Actually, let's look at 12, two chapters before, and that'll give us some background. Let's start with verse 4. Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. There are varieties of activities, but the same God who activates all of them and every one. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. To one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom. To another, the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. Does that mean some of us don't have faith? You know, some people who have a gift of faith, the rest of us, we wrestle with trusting God. Other people have that gift. To another, the gift of healing by one Spirit. To another, the working of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, discernment of spirits. To another, various kinds of tongues. To another, the interpretation of tongues. And uh, I think he goes, all of these are activated by one and the same Spirit who allots to each one individually just as the Spirit chooses. And this discussion, by the way, encompasses three chapters, chapter 12, 13, and 14. Chapter 13, of course, is the famous love chapter, but that is all part of this whole statement on spiritual gifts. So who gets to be a prophet? Whoever he determines. Whoever he determines. Whoever he, to whom he gives that gift. So it's not necessarily all of us? No. 
Do all of us speak in tongues? Yes. Well, some of us that are given to it just really don't want to have it when you take Jonah's, Jonah's example. So maybe some people are given the gift of prophecy and they don't want to use it. Is that possible? What, what has to happen for God to give the gift, any of the gifts, to people? A willingness to receive it? I want to come back to what Elmer raised the question because I, I think we haven't quite grappled with it adequately. Why would God choose someone? And, you know, assuming that prophets, we're not all prophets, okay? Prophecy is something God chooses specifically in a person. Why would he choose someone outside the system? Someone we won't listen to. I'd like to question that last phrase. Okay. I believe that if a, a person or a group does not have the willingness to listen, they simply find a different means to discount the messenger. And actually <laughs> okay. an outsider is more likely to be listened to than an insider. In, in the current realm of things anyway, that's and, true. And uh, an insider will give a report or a message and it's considered along with all the other insiders' messages or reports. Uh, but uh, I think all of us see fairly clearly at times how easily we discount one another when the message is unpopular or cuts against the grain. So I, I'm not sure that that uh, an outsider really is a disadvantage. Maybe it's an advantage, okay? Anybody else want to comment on that? You ask why he would send someone they wouldn't listen to. Why does God send us messages when we don't listen? Why does He send us pastors and teachers? So maybe they were talking about a perennial human problem here. It's, it's His job to warn us. It's His choice. Uh, just because He knew they would not accept does not mean that He foreordained they would not accept. Okay. So, so what you're suggesting is that God is faced with a very real problem. And He can't just find someone we'll listen to and and still get the same message across. Asking why did he pick someone they wouldn't listen to sounds like he had another choice. There was someone they would listen to. Did he have that choice? Yeah. Okay, good point. Yeah. It was kind of like Jesus came and he didn't have like outward glory because God wanted everybody to listen to Jesus because of his message, not because of the appearance. Mm -hmm. And maybe it was the same with the prophets. He didn't want people to accept the message because of the position they held, because of the message they were giving. So he, he, he would actually not want them to be able to listen to them easily? You know, we need to probe that a little bit. Along the same lines of what he's saying, it's kind of like the prophets were really precursors to Jesus. They were, mm -hmm. they were this is a person who's going to be like my son, who doesn't have the status, doesn't have the appearance, doesn't have... This is what my son is going to be like. This is a little foretaste of what you should look for when the Messiah comes. Okay. I want to come back to Nate's comment here. Drawing it one step further. Does God want us to listen to his message? Sure. Does he want us to listen to it for selfish motives? 
Does he want that message to be reformatted in our minds so that it fits in our little scheme of things? So that we can control it. You see, I, I think what Nate has suggested is very significant that God deliberately enshrouded his glory in his son. And that he has always used very simple means to carry out his message and done things very, in our terms, backward. I didn't mean backward in certain terms of opposite direction, although that, that could be true too. But backward in the sense of, oh, you know, it's just not classy enough. It's, it's not just, uh, it doesn't gl- gleam as well. It, it doesn't shine as brightly. It doesn't look so yuppie. It, it, it doesn't have that, um, that, that flavor that it's acceptable. Everybody likes it. And why would that be that he doesn't go that route? Yeah. Maybe it has something to do with the glory. Because he seems to delight in using the simple to come the wise. Does it have to do maybe with the very nature of God? That he is not a God of glamour and glitter and facades like we tend to paste on everything? That he is a God of reality and reality is simple in its very basic constructs? I saw a hand over here. I think it might have something to do with God wants us to make choices for the right reasons. What, what happens when people accept something because of status? You know, look at the status that person has, or you know, he has this office, or he has this kind of position of power, or you know, the respect thing. I'll, I'll tell you <laughs> where it goes. You get phone calls all the time with people asking you questions because they think of you as an expert. <laughs> And you know that what answer you give them, they're going to believe it just because you're an expert. You can tell them the moon is black and they'd believe you if, if they thought you were an expert in lunar uh, science. <laughs> the, the thing is that it's very dangerous to have that kind of mentality because we're likely to believe the wrong things simply because we think the right person has told us the truth. And that's only part of it the other part of it is that God does not tend to want to appeal to human ego because human ego is the farthest thing from sanctification it's the farthest thing really from love so if a person is attracted to baby lying in a feeding trough for example and they come in and see that baby lying in a feeding trough with two people who appear to be homeless no position, no power, nothing, no glory, no dowsing lights. And they worship him as the Messiah, that is, as the anointed one, the king of Israel. Then they have recognized something that people who are awed and appreciative of the facades that we wear can't see. What is it that they've recognized? They listen to the Holy Spirit. But what is it that helps them listen? What is it that they understand about God and his ways? It has helped them to perceive. The simplicity of God's character and, and the way he shows it. His simplicity? What else? Purity? What else? Humility. God is a humble person. Do we really have that logged in up here? We call him King of Kings and Lord of Lords. We'd love that, that power in those words. 
humble king of kings and lord of lords just doesn't cut it do we, do we really have that logged in in our, in our framework for God that he is first and foremost humble that humility is the groundwork of his love and all the things that without humility his love would not be genuine do we, do we have that seems like all those attributes you just mentioned about God his character I mean, down here we think of him as all powerful and mighty and you know he would just tremble in his presence reverently but uh, having that character like Jesus is described in, in uh, the Colossians 2 or Philippians 2 maybe that's why Satan or Lucifer thought he could take him on but he's meek and he's so open about everything and you know I could take this you sound like recent history. You know, the White House is so open and, and every, anybody can go there and, and why anybody can take you on. <laughs> That's why we, we are call, in Revelation symbolized as a lamb with, unfortunately, with horns. Suggesting perhaps that, that a democracy, government that has represented democracy is the closest thing we have on this planet to the way God runs his universe, which I think is consensual government. The metaphors we bring to it have an awful lot to do with how we see it. And the Bible uses the metaphor of monarchy because the Bible doesn't know anything of a democracy. It's hard to picture all the voting. <laughs> Consensual, in my opinion, doesn't mean taking an election and the majority rules. I, don't, I think it's where every last angel has agreed that this is the way God is. This is the way it ought to be. I think if you, re if you want to do a fascinating study, and I've done this, go to the CD-ROM and take, take on words like councils, council, decisions, and look up all the places where she talks about them in terms of heaven. And it'll look at first like the council that she's talking about in heaven is just the Godhead, you know, the three members of the Godhead making a decision. But if you keep going through, you'll find statements that there's no way you can take it any other way than to suggest that the councils of heaven are God and the angels and the sons of God who are the representatives from other planets. The whole Adam-Christ motif is a representative government type of motif. Jesus is the second Adam, meaning that he is our representative from this planet in the, in the courts of heaven with all the other sons of God. All the other sons of God being representatives from their planets. Is it the third of the angels voted against God? Okay, so now you have a problem with the consensual government. A third of the angels voted against God. And they apparently seem to be expelled. Although Jude says they left. <laughs> Revelation says there was no room for them. No place for them found in heaven. John says that Jesus went to prepare for us a place. And we think immediately of hammering nails into marble mansions. Uh, <laughs> I'm making it sound ludicrous for a reason. Uh, <laughs> the truth is, I think when he said, I prepare a place for you, he was saying, I'm going to go up there and argue your case. Not for God. God's already settled on this. But I'm not going to bring anybody to heaven without the loyal angels. And this is what I mean by consensual government the loyal angels being able to agree that the evidence supports the case. If you read everything that we have with Ellen White, and, and then go back to the Bible, you'll find it in the Bible too. The idea of two witnesses in the sanctuary in the most holy place, overlooking the ark, is an idea of 
a consensual type government. These, why would you need witnesses if God makes all the decisions up there? Why do you need any kind of involvement with the onlooking universe if God makes all the decisions? If he is merely a monarch, there's, there's no sweat. Then why do you have a 6,000 year great controversy? Why couldn't God have just ended it? it? I'm the monarch up here. I make all the decisions. You don't have a chance to question my ways. It's all over. He makes the decisions about how things will be. The rest of the universe decides whether they want to live with that or reject it. I could still be arbitrary. When the uh, angels voted, God didn't stay in power because two-thirds voted for and one-third voted again. <laughs> but he didn't kill them either. Why didn't he kill them? Well, the thing wasn't even presented right before the whole universe, so they wouldn't know. They would be worshiping from fear rather than reason. Then it's not autocratic. So if, if what God does is say, I need time for the principle of evil to manifest its full truth so that you can see for yourself where evil leads. See, I think the only difference between the loyal and the disloyal angels is this. The loyal angels were willing to wait for the evidence. The disloyal angels a priori made up their minds irrespective of any evidence and said, this is the way we want to go. And when people do that, there's not much you can do. I mean, there's no way you can coexist in the same heaven. You're going to have endless war. Because what they're about is the opposite of love, which is the law of life. The problem is that Satan challenged that. He claimed it wasn't life, that he could have life in a different way. And he fully, he gained such control that because they were going the opposite of love, you had potentially the capacity for them to be destroyed in God's presence if they continued to live there. So in some ways, it's better to remove them from heaven in order to keep them existing so that they can show, reveal their principles and that takes a long, drawn out process that's very painful. But if you really want to see something for what it is, you have to give it time. You cannot, the more you try to pull it out of itself or, or force it into something or deal with it, the more it's going to go underground and go underground. Uh, surgeons have to make this decision. Oncologists have to make this decision every time they operate on a person with cancer. Because the minute they stick that knife in, it's very possible they'll, they'll cause a metastasis. And con that's the kind of thing you're dealing with. Cancer really is very much like sin in terms of how it acts. And it's, it makes a good metaphor then. So, so given all of those things, if you read Ellen White carefully, she says, that at one time all of the loyal beings in God's universe voted that God should destroy this planet and God did not which means that voting isn't how what consensual government means consensual government means that God waits long enough until every loyal creature has made up their minds yes for the right reasons not because God has said so but for the right reasons Yes, this is the way we want to go. That she says that he waited still because some, not all, maybe a minority, 
if he had allowed Satan and his followers to receive the consequences of their choice, she said they would have perished. But it would have not been apparent to other beings that this was not an act of God. And some, just some, would have served him from fear. And ultimately fear leads to rebellion. Now that's the Desire of Ages, page 764. If you want to look it up. It's the last paragraph of that chapter. Chapter it is finished. Yeah. Gene, I was just thinking how much easier all of our lives would be if we would take that same attitude in all areas. But as our personal life, uh, our political life right now, I think we see in our own government hopefully following that same, getting all the information they need. I thought of how often our church has been ripped apart because we've jumped to conclusions way ahead of time mm-hmm. before we've gotten all the information mm-hmm. on situations rather than letting... I know that uh, was it Gamaliel back in Paul's day said the same thing. He goes, if this thing is of God, mm-hmm. we can't fight it. Mm-hmm. You know, but, but if Give it time to develop. There, there's two examples of that. Ellen White says that God bore long with Lucifer. How long is long in terms of eternity? hundred years? He did not, when he knew rebellion was being festered in his heart, he did not jump in immediately and say, I know what you're up to, you stop it. That led Lucifer all the more, as uh, Rob was pointing out, to think that God was weak. The other one is John Harvey Kellogg. If you read this history of John Harvey Kellogg, Alan White waited and waited and waited to deal with him. She waited until he had ripened to the point where it was obvious where he was headed. She did not foreclose on him. But she gave warnings all along the way. She gave him warnings from time to time, but she still treated him as one of the brethren. She did not preclude ahead of time, you're going to disaster brother, I know, and and write him off. She worked with him to almost the very last minute. If you read all of her correspondence, the best place to go is the six-volume biography of Arthur White. Find the one that deals with the John Harvey Kellogg and read it. It's amazing how patient. She was far more patient than we would be now with him. So we have two examples that come to my mind readily with how this actually has has borne out, that God gives time. And and you can't have that in an autocratic, royal-type government. Remember, who invented kingship? We did. Babylonians did. It's the Babylonian creation. God used it reluctantly, I think, in the Bible, metaphorically. But if you read carefully... He's against Israel having a king. Well, why did you have such a problem with false prophets? Was it not because they had a king? And once you had a king, then you had this governmental prophecy type of thing. And then Amos comes along and has a problem. God has a problem with his true prophets because he has all these political prophets. When Israel chose a king, they stepped very close to a union of church and state. Before they'd had a theocracy. Theocracy means God runs the government. He he talks to the prophets. Let's look at one other place and, and that this becomes clear. Isaiah 6. Prophets really, in a sense, had the privilege of standing in the councils of heaven. And let's see how those councils operated. Isaiah 6, starting with verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lofty, and the hem of his robe filled the temple. Seraphs were in attendance above him. Each had six wings. 
and two with two they covered their faces and with two they covered their feet and with two they flew and one called to another and said holy 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 is the lord of hosts and the whole earth is filled with his glory and here you have the the seraphs were in attendance okay so this is the core same thing you have in in job remember there was a day when the sons of god gathered around him took their positions before him that is a courtroom setting where decisions are about to be made the pivots on the threshold shook at the voices of those who called and the house filled with smoke and and I said woe is me I am lost for I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips yet my eyes have seen the king the lord of hosts note he refers to him as a king note how this king handles things and one of the seraphs flew to me holding a live coal that had been taken from the altar with a pair of tongs the seraph touched my mouth with it and said now that this has touched your lips your guilt has departed and your sin is blotted out and then I heard the voice of the Lord saying who is he talking to? he's talking to his counsel whom shall I send? and who will go for us? and who says? me, I'll go that's Isaiah Isaiah finds himself in vision in heaven with the sons of God the angels of God surrounding his throne God looks at all of them and says who will I go who, will, who can I send and Isaiah raises his hand this is volunteerism not ordering well certainly he, he doesn't pick people who aren't necessarily going to volunteer but any angel could have volunteered if you read Mount of Blessing Ellen White says that the angels are as sons they are not commanded as slaves they are sons and she talks all the way through another word to look up in her on the CD-ROM is volunteer God's government is volunteer no one is compelled to do anything compulsion when, when Satan began his rebellion she says he developed a new principle that of force force has never been used in God's government until Satan rebelled that's what leads her in, in Desire of Ages 759 to say compelling power is found only under Satan's government the Lord's principles are not of this order his authority rests upon goodness mercy and love and the presentation of these principles is the means to be used God's government is moral and truth and love are to be the prevailing power you see it isn't God's command it isn't his say so it isn't his arbitrary judgment that determines things it is truth it is the truth itself it is love itself in other words it is right because it is right not because God has said it is right God only says what is right because it is right but he wants his creatures to be convinced of that that's what consensual means it means that every one of his loyal creatures is convinced that his ways are right because they are right not because God has merely said so that's his goal so here we have Amos speaking outside the system called to be a prophet faced with all the facades that we could raise all the political prophets who have their agendas who want to make being good with the king because if they are they get farther get more perks and he has to speak the straight truth next week we're going to talk about 
What about this thing of prophets rebuking people? Why is so much of prophecy rebuke? And how do we handle that? Let's pray. Dear God, we thank you that you are a king above every king, unlike every king, and God unlike every other God, and that's what makes you God. We pray that we may be persuaded in our own minds of the kind of person you are, and that you are worthy of your title, of your authority, of your supremacy. May we understand that your ways are right and true. Most of all, may we adopt your humble posture and how we handle things and the truth with other people. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Amen.